Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroke. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today is the first of a two-part series where we're gonna provide a case study of an actual M&A transaction from both the buyer side and the sell side perspectives where rep and warranty was used and played a key role. The first side is with the buyer side, which is uh, Mr. Stephen Epstein. He's the founder of Red Cat Systems, a SaaS company based in Colorado. I'll let Stephen tell you his experiences in his own words and the benefits he got. What's important here is for you to understand that prior to 2019, Red Cat Systems would not have been eligible for consideration for rep and warranty. It was a lower middle market company with a transaction value well below $30 million. They did not have audited financials, and they were seeking insurance to a level that was well over half of the transaction value. Any of these three would have made Red Cat ineligible. But in 2019, not only was there a solution available, but it came in at the right price. The other thing to consider for any of you that are either part of a lower middle market company or represent a lower middle market company, the benefits that Red Cat both on the sell side and the buy side received are no different from benefits that are received with billion dollar transactions. And now let's turn it over to Stephen. I'm here with Stephen Epstein of Red Cat Systems. And Stephen, if you could tell us real quick, tell me about Red Cat. What exactly is it? And how did it start? Give, give us the, back, the background of the organization. Sure. We um, formed a company prior to Red Cat in 1996 and started doing um, HR solutions started with recruiting, and then um, throughout the years, just worked on various various projects for lots of uh, mostly friends, and then that turned into acquaintances, and then as people moved, we grew holistically. Um, and then in 2014, we formed a Red Cat with a new partner, um, and uh, we kind of focused more on enterprise HR, basically replacing technological solutions in, in the HR space, and then our specialty became compensation. So we end up doing our primary thing is high-end compensation for Fortune Fortune 500 companies with large global footprints of how they manage their compensation process, and then also in the performance management space a bit as well. Now, the very very important stuff, particularly as you get more and more people, you've got to keep track of who has stock options, who has shares in the company, all all those types of things. Oh yeah, and um, it's it's difficult for large global organizations with tens of thousands of people to manage this. If you're in say 120 countries, you have a lot of currency fluctuations. You have a tremendous array of compensation decisions from base salary to bonus, fixed bonus, retention, stock, performance-based stock, market conditions, performance conditions, um, you know, top performers, retention things. There's a whole array of how a company would do this totally separate from things like payroll, actually giving an employee um, compensation. So the tools that we do allow companies to manage that process efficiently, either sometimes with small teams, you know, some of the companies might have 50 people on a compensation team, 50 full-time people are actually thinking about compensation. And so the tool becomes a focal point 
and allows them to um, a you know look at all the data and manage the entire process efficiently because it, it's easy for companies to forget that in most cases um, for a lot of companies compensation is their by their basic expense by far they're vastly outnumbers yeah. any other expense in most of these companies and people take it for granted like oh well we just have to pay that so 94% of our our total expense oh that's just a given and they're not really optimizing the fact that compensation um, totally affects more, you know, it's morale, it's retention, it's growth, it's how employees view the company. Even though it's sort of an, a fairly, you know, a basic um, metric, it's it's sometimes not viewed um, the right way. And if you have well, attrition, and a then you're very, not it, yes. Yeah, it is a very intimately personal uh, viewpoint held for every single person in an organization. So uh, that that is central to their core of why they're with, with a company. That that becomes a pretty daunting task when you've got that many people. Exactly, yep. And, even, and sometimes even smaller companies in the financial services sector, some of our clients may only have 1,000 or 2,000 employees, but especially in financial services, one of the key things is compensation. That's why they're at the job that they're doing. And therefore, it, it's extremely important. A lot of white glove service, you'll have you know, lots of people that are very interested in the outcome of compensation that year. So, Absolutely, absolutely. So as you, you got going in 2014, what, what led the decision to go out and be acquired? So our, the decision to be acquired was mostly related to the fact that um, we had a lot of pressure to grow. And we didn't really want to go with the venture capital route. Um, we had various friends and acquaintances that you know, had gone that route, the whole bit of it. And um, we were finding it difficult to stay our current size and get the types of clients, very top, top tier clients, often multi-billion dollar payouts each, each time we would run the cycle. It was difficult with our headcount. We're very small. And so we knew to be able to stay relevant and to meet the types of compliance um, for GDPR and complexity, technically, um, we needed to grow. And we had tried a little ourselves, and we just knew we needed more help. And so we kind of helped to um, decided to find individuals that had our same philosophy or cultural, you know, had our vision for cultural and philosophy, and to help to get the help we needed to be able to grow. So as you looked at cultural philosophy, how did the process look? Did you run out and uh, solicit a bunch of contacts that you had or did, did uh, organizations come find you? How, how, did you? how did you go out there to find, to find a, a partner that you could team up with? So we originally, I mean, we were somewhat blessed because one of our partners is very well connected in the financial services industry. And he had various friends that had, um, you know, connections through banks and advisors and people in the M&A space who did who do this, right? As that's their full-time thing is to go and find and connect buyers and sellers. And so for a year or two, um, we had you know there was a deck and so forth, and they approached lots and lots of um, possible acquiring entities about us. But I think for a little while it was we were just a little too small at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a question, you know, there's sort of like this unwritten, say, 2 million EBITDA rule that sort of seems to be out there, revenue, EBITDA, whatever it is. 
and find, finding the kind, the type of client, the type of company that we work with. We had, we, we began negotiations with a few um, that were interested, but we could tell right away that they were more interested in like massive growth, let's make lots of money, hire lots of people and try to mass market. And that really wasn't our, not our client base and it wasn't our philosophy. Mm-hmm. So it, and how did, you so, set, um, how did you settle on Broadtree? So Broadtree was, was more, you know, when we first, when we first were introduced to them, they had a, they had a different idea of growth. It wasn't like, let's hire 10 or 20 people right away and just sort of throw them in the fire and see if they can grow. It was much more measured growth, which was um, myself um, and Bonnie, our, our philosophy was more about that. Because of the clients, you know, we had a fairly small number of clients, about a dozen at the time, and they were all very high end. They're all, you know, names that pretty much anyone in America would generally know if you just said it. And from that, we wanted to make sure that our clients were treated very well, right, which is very high level of service. There's really nothing that we would be asked that we weren't able to fulfill on time, on budget. And pretty much the experience was exceptional. That's why we were able to get the types of work that we do. And we wanted someone who would share that philosophy and maintain that. While at the same time just doing measured growth. Okay, and so then the process begins. About when, when did when did you guys start the the process of Broadtree? Uh, just to give us an idea of the time scope on this. Oh, t- timing. Let's see. When did we start Broadtree? I think it was about from now about a year year and two months ago. But okay. the entire process effectively once we had a signed LOI, it took roughly nine months. To actually close the deal. And that's something that okay. I had read about. Like, oh, diligence is hard. Oh, no, diligence is nutty, nutty hard. Oh, right. Like, there's so much mm-hmm. to the diligence process of, um, of detail. We did an okay job prior to um, prior to the, this whole process. If I had I known at the time, like now, would I know then? As a company, if that was your plan, I would be just keep much more meticulous track of documents. Like every single mm. document, the signed copy, the dated copy, the stamped copy. We have we have like 600 pages of documents like this as part of our binder. You know, every mm-hmm. contract, every single thing. We're normally like in an email, you don't think about it. You get back a signed PDF and you're like, okay, yeah, they signed the contract. Okay. And whether or not you sign it immediately, file it, store it in the right thingy, date it, eh. That, that type of thing, and all the minutes, and every little bit of every single dollar I was ever spent, with, took a lot of effort to come up with. And all, mm-hmm. and the contracts were, you know, thousands of pages of contracts um, that we had already signed. But then looking and reviewing every single thing took quite a quite a while. Like when we started, like in September, we're like, oh, we'll be done by the end of the year. Like, wow, it's mm-hmm. great. That's already a couple of months. And um, just things seem to take longer than they should. Even when we were near, I mean, like after all the months and diligence, even near the end, when we were getting, getting closer to actually doing the deal, it still kept slipping. Like, oh, it'll be next week. Oh, no. Oh, we don't have the certificate from California because, you know, it's only good for 10 days and then it expires and you have to get a new one. Yeah. And, oh, it, we have seven of those in all these different states. Oh, and this state only accepts mailed copies, things like that. Like constantly there was always some extra long, extra thing that um, made difficult to close. But, um, but in the end, we did. And you may, well, that's one real danger out there is that you get so busy 
getting everything set up for being acquired and going through the diligence process, it becomes a separate full-time job. You still have to keep your eye on the ball and keep, you know, operating and doing uh, your client work. Absolutely. That's actually something that um, a few of the delays are just because of that. Exactly. I'm like, I don't really have time to, to respond in an efficient manner because we're in the thick of doing um, a project, for example. But, it, but really that, in our case, it was more like I just sort of worked too hard for mm-hmm. for the nine months rather than um, than pushing it too much. But it's something that um, that like you read about, but you probably don't fully understand the depth. At least, at least in our industry and like in tech, of the level of diligence and every mm-hmm. bit of open source code, even when it was like twenty lines of code that was copied from a from something. But it was mm-hmm. that felt like it had no relevance whatsoever. Well, technically, it's still an open source. Um, piece of code that prints a little warning message. Oh, okay. Well, we have to disclose that. Mm, gotcha. So that that gotcha. Was, that is, there's a lot. There's a lot to that. Now, one of your partners was insistent on on having the deal insured with rapid warranty insurance. What what was the background on that, and how did you actually how did that lead you to us? Yes, good question. So the background is that one of our partners was is sort of a high net worth individual. And he was more concerned about liability, about being personally sued or doing this big deal. And then like, what if some crazy thing happened? You know, in my man, personally, fantastical scenarios, but conceivably possible given the type of, you know, our size as very small company versus, you know, the giant, say an Oracle. If Oracle decided to sue us for no reason, just because we technically compete with them in an area um, that they would likely win simply because they mm-hmm. could outspend any, any possible legal defense. Um, in that vein, he wanted to have, have the ability to have coverage, effectively, to be able to, to help shield that liability. And so at the time, and when we first looked at this, the expectation from everyone we had spoken with was that uh, rep and warranty wasn't really available to a company of our size. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to be in the 50 million, 100 million, you know, big, big deals. And um, I, of course, did a nice quick Google. <laughs> Google's great. And, you know, mm-hmm. spent 20 minutes actually reading various things. And I came across some an article that you had written, actually, and that really resonated. I was like, oh, that, that sounds like something, you know, an opportunity to have a solution here rather than just like, we can't do it. Like, we're going to put in a max cap that's too low because I knew that the buyers wouldn't go for that. They'd be like, well, wait, if we're spending all this money, we want to be able to have a higher limitation of our of our expense rather than say a couple of million dollars so that seemed like there was actually an opportunity and then the next thing that came out was cost we're like oh okay well you can get this rep and warranty insurance as a, as a smaller entity but it is the cost prohibitive is it completely you know if it's like oh it's 10 percent of the deal price most likely that would makes it completely prohibitive but it um you know obviously as you know the rates have been dropping and it became something that was in the realm of possibility when you presented this to the buyer, what was the buyer's response? Well, at first, the buyer's response was, "Oh, um, that's great. We don't, we don't think we need it because the, the liability from us was very small because of the, the relatively limited number of possible um, infractions. I mean, it didn't have that many contracts, but there wasn't that many. There wasn't that much code that actually could possibly be infringing, but still." Um, I think in the end, uh, they were appreciative. A, it, it um, allayed our partner's 
um, fears, basically, of the deal, as well as the liability. Um, it eliminated, uh, from our perspective, because we stayed on, right? We're staying on as um, as very integral into the the, uh, the continued success. And if something did come up, I think it would be tremendously valuable to have. And that, and why? Because if something came up and it was like, oh, where well, we're going to put um put something back on the sellers originally. Like let's you know um let's say we had we didn't in the end because we have R and W but let's say we did put say you know million five or two million dollars in escrow, and then some kind of obscure thing came out right, and we disagreed with it. We we're like, well, we don't really feel that this is a valid thing. The defense wasn't done right. That would cause a serious breach, not not only of you know say it's a million or two dollars, but then we probably wouldn't want to stay on, and that the effect of that most likely would be the failure of the business, the new business. That dilemma is something we see quite a bit where you have a technology buyer and post-closing, they bring on bring on the, the target company and they bring on a bulk of the personnel, the management team and so forth. They bring them on in and that new group are just rock stars and they're getting along great. And then all of a sudden there will be some breach that happens. And now the, the, you know, the dilemma, well, do we take away their, um, their escrow that we've been holding, or do we just eat it because we don't want to have uh, a drop in morale, and we don't want these guys mentally checking out on us, and so they end up a lot of times having to eat a loss that otherwise would have been insured, and so right. um, yeah, I think, I think that's a real great point, and and I think that the buyer, I agree, I think the buyer was at first you know a bit ambivalent, but as the process w- went on, uh, they really started to embrace it, largely because, uh, you know, it put your partner at a lot more comfort. And I think that that really uh, helped helped the process move forward a lot smoother. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. Yes. So um, so in the end, I think, I mean, obviously, it's still, you know, the the numbers are still feel big. You're like, wow, that's an expensive, that's a lot. But the peace of mind is can be priceless. Right. Just a feeling like, okay, well, I don't have to worry about this. If some frivolous thing happened, and at least, you know, we're covered. It's not a thing that will a damage the relationship and b, you know, just consume um, life energy worrying or fighting about something that is likely frivolous. Well said. I could not have said that better myself. Now, a lot of times with the rep and warranty policies, they're dealt with between the buyer and the insurance people. Uh, I don't know how much involvement you had. Did you have any involvement uh, in 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 doing anything other than uh, getting us connected with with your buyer team? Oh, a little bit, sure. We we looked at you know obviously the um, the actual policy itself, and then you we pushed back on like a, the wording of a couple things, like oh we won't cover this little obscure thing, and you say oh why not, and then we. We discussed it a little bit, and we tweaked those, and but n- nothing truly material. It was all fairly small, benign things. And it, it it didn't it didn't slow down your process or the deal or anything like that. wasn't wasn't too much extra work being dumped on you. No, not really. No, the insurance bit was um, was relatively benign time wise. We didn't spend. I mean, you have to read it. You know, twenty page. You know, we read a lot. You know, still twenty pages of reading, but that it wasn't like we spent a lot of time and effort on it. And as far as, you know, the actual timeline of the deal, it was fine. 
had we closed um, like right away, it still seemed like that was it was something that we could have um, if we were extremely expeditious, we would have been able to still uh, meet our deadlines. As it turned out, we had extra time, so it was fine. So aside from now having the uh, knowledge of watching all your documents very closely and making sure you pay attention to every dollar that's spent and why and all the code having that accounted for. Any other lessons from, from this experience or is there, you know, anything that really surprised you uh, other than, other than the, the minutia on the documents details? Document details was, was big. Um, I would say, you know, obviously you're, you work very closely in our case with the buyer, spending a lot of time going through a lot of diligence, a lot of discussions. And so making sure that probably, and that's something that would evolve over time, but it, I would think that would be very important to ensure that the people that you're working with, your buyer, for if you're a company like us, that you like them, that they're good people. Luckily we worked out. Um, our buyer is great. Talk, just talk to him right before this call. He's, he's great. We, we love, um, I think it's it's a good working relationship. Other surprises that came up, um, not not tremendous. I think that we it's easy to um, to focus on some things that, in retrospect, we spent too much time focusing on some of the numbers mm -hmm. and so forth. That it's easy to um, to imagine scenarios that are completely unrealistic. To focus on like outcomes or future cases, I know that they can happen, which is why. Um, obviously, like rep and insurance, rep and warranty insurance, why it exists. But um, I think that that probably could be streamlined. That's something I'd like to see, actually, like from you, Patrick, would be um, like a, a cheat sheet. Hey, just in a lot of deals, these are the things that probably that you should be focusing on rather than this generic like, oh, what if, what if that, what if this, and then um, mm -hmm. coming up with language to, to address cases that are probably just covered, for example, with like rep and warranty like we did a lot of that before we had the rep and warranty like oh what about this case what about that case what's the limit of this liability how many months for this and really all of that was a waste of time because we knew that uh, once we knew we were going to get rep and warranty yeah then then, so like, then you there were fewer contingencies to worry about exactly and some of the and a lot of the contingencies um we spent too much time talking about that were very far-fetched Gotcha. From my from my perspective, things like oh, some gotcha. some unknown company in Russia is going to sue you for code that you, like you've never written, yeah. like things things like that. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Well, now you've already gone through your first board meeting with your with the your your new partners and everything. How are how are things going? You mentioned that you like them, which is always a really really positive thing. Uh, but how's it going? It's, it's going well. Yeah, I mean, our, you know, as I may have mentioned, our, our primary problem is capacity. The capacity strain, meaning that we're small, and to really handle, like, larger volumes of um, the types of clients we work with, we need, you know, highly skilled people that are really good. And that is a difficult challenge to find. Um, and, but we're doing our best. Um, you know, we have a fairly, you know, we've had recruiters, we've had thousands of applicants um, and then we have you know various tools that we're using internally to try to ascertain you know is this going this person a good fit um, and uh, assuming that that goes well and hopefully it will um, it's it should be good yeah I mean then then it's just more of a how how much do we want to scale how long do we want to play this game 
I mean, while it's still fun, and that's a big thing, make sure it's fun. Like, you have to enjoy what you're doing, or otherwise you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Truthfully. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as as you're having fun, there may be some other people that could have some questions for you. Um, how can people reach you? I think LinkedIn's a great way. Just reach out on my LinkedIn and okay. connect, ask a question. It, that's easy. Sure, okay. So it's on LinkedIn. It's Stephen, Stephen with a V, and then Epstein, E P E P E I N. Yep. And Red Cat Systems. Great. And Red Cat Systems. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. This has been real helpful, and uh, I'm I'm glad that this all worked out. I mean, our our objective on this whole venture that we have at Rubicon is we want to help people who created something from nothing be able to move on and and exit one platform and move on to another where whether that's you know being acquired by a strategic or just uh going riding off into the sunset with a with a clean exit for a, a great retirement uh you've added tremendous value redcast systems very successful and your company are a list of the who's who of uh, fortune 100 firms and uh you're definitely adding value with with what you're doing and I really sincerely uh, wish you the very best of luck, uh, and hopefully we'll we'll be with you uh, when when the next uh, you know nine or ten figure deal comes up for you. That that sounds great. Yeah, I mean, like that's what's it. another interesting thing you could add. Of course, is that once you've done this yeah. once, you think, oh wow, <laughs> what about this idea? That that would be fun. So um, mm-hmm. there's lots of ideas out there. I think it's just finding the passion. And um, one one extra thing that I'll I'll give you a little bit that, that you could throw on if you're editing something together is sure. um, when we when we first when I first found found Rubicon from the article which I liked mm-hmm. and give me you know basis of course there's everyone else had someone else like did you talk to Marsh did you talk to this person did you talk to that person and it was fine I tried to stay out of spending a lot of time on it. In the end, I think that um, the, everything you did was fine. It was great. The pricing was all similar, normal-ish. So it wasn't a lot of like, wow, I need to shop around a whole lot. And it was very convenient that you were, like had worked with enough companies that you could quickly give us like an, an overview that you're able to shop to you to the various insurance companies. So we didn't have to spend lots of time shopping. Meaning like I felt mm-hmm. confident that that was approximately what we would expect. And it was great to save more time. I I appreciate that. Yeah, the, the that's the new that's the other thing that is new out there is there when when you and I spoke our first conversation was in February, there were probably about eleven or twelve insurance companies active in rep and warranty. There are now as of, just in a few months now we're up to twenty companies and they are oh, wow. going all over the map from. Ones that focus just on sub fifty million dollar transactions, and then others that won't go below one hundred million because they they want that segment of the market. So it's definitely maturing, and it's something to go go forward with. But uh, I I just wish you all the best of luck, and we're gonna uh, do what we can to stay in touch with you, Stephen, and keep uh, keep track of Red Cat Systems. 